Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus. It's a pleasure to have with me today, Seth Edgar. Hi, Seth. Hey. Seth is the CISO at insurance solutions provider, AF Group. Prior to AF Group, Seth was the CISO at Michigan State University and worked as a cybersecurity engineer at MITRE. He earned his Master's of Science in Computer Science from the Naval Postgraduate School after his three-year stint as a middle school English teacher. So Seth, how about we get started? Why don't you start by telling us how you got into security? Yeah, absolutely. So I think everybody in this industry starts out by saying, I had a non-traditional path to security on, on some level. I was a middle school English teacher in about 2007 through 2010, somewhere in that range. <laughs> Dates are a little imprecise. I'd have to check LinkedIn, I guess. But before that, uh, my job in college, I worked at a computer repair and sales store. I started out by selling, you know, little flash drives and devices and talking about, you know, this processor is better than that processor type of stuff for new students coming in. It was the university computer store. As time went on there, I really, I was covering shifts for other people and I really got into computer repair, especially digital backups and file backups and starting to get right up to that fringe of digital forensics, but not knowing what the heck I was doing. Mostly file recovery tools, download random software from the internet, see if it works to help people, that kind of stuff. So when I was done with college and I went on to being a teacher, my, my chosen profession at the time, I found myself helping my fellow teachers a lot and eventually even switched over to the IT department for that school district. They had just passed a really large millage. They were switching from... Windows XP machines to Macs for I don't even know how many hundred teachers, but there's a learning curve there. And so this was right around 2009 when the housing downturn, et cetera, was, was happening. My school district was cutting teaching positions and it was a, a natural switch for me. I loved teaching, but I loved being employed more. <laughs> so I switched over to, to the IT department and began helping teachers do, do their stuff. This sounds like me patting myself on the back. It's not just the teachers in general. I had been a one of them and now I was helping them. There was a natural transition to, goodness, it's starting to look like I might run technology for this school district. And that's really scary. At most, I, I didn't have anything on the level of network experience, database experience, running large scale anything. And that district was at the time still on an AS400 all of that appeared incredibly daunting. And so I decided to go back to school. I ended up getting a full ride of scholarship with a program called the Scholarship for Service, SFS, and went to Naval Postgraduate School. So packed up my belongings, sold my house, moved across the country to California. And I had no idea what I was getting into. It was good, but I was one of a very small number of civilian employees working. I think at the time we were graduate assistants or research assistants for the Navy at the school. And then going to class with my entire class being military, with the exception of a couple other civilians. I had friends that had joined the military. I was not exposed to full military culture like that. 
Monterey, California is beautiful, but it is very much a military town. Defense Language Institute and Naval Postgrad are both there. So a large, large military presence. I was meeting the best and the brightest in the military, specifically in the Navy, but there were Army and Marines and some Air Force folks. A lot of them went elsewhere, but large, large military presence of incredibly bright, incredibly great people. When you're young and feel like you're semi-insecure in a field and, and suddenly you're surrounded by you know people whose bachelors are in things like nuclear science and stuff, it was quite the full immersion program. I went to school year-round. There really weren't a lot of breaks. It was very traditional military style. Classes began precisely on the dot. National anthem played every morning. You stopped for the national anthem. It was very different than my liberal arts undergrad, <laughs> to say the least. But I got to study under some amazing professors. Probably the, the most prominent for me was Chris Eagle. He is the author of the Ida Pro book, very involved in the reverse engineering community. Eventually, I ended up doing my thesis under him, helping teach a couple of entry-level security classes by the end of my time there as well, just like TA type stuff. And then I was on to doing reverse engineering full-time and programs for different customers and different clients of MITRE. So I lived in the greater DC area and I worked all over the map, clearanced and unclearanced, different federal organizations kind of all over the map. So really gave me a wide swath of experience, not just using the RE stuff, but solutioning for a lot of things, which was incredibly helpful, but always seemed usually retroactive. It was usually, you know, something had occurred and now we need to figure out how to not let that happen again. And while that was interesting and really cool work, a job came up back in Michigan, which is where I'm from originally. And it was at MSU and they were building out their security program. And I got a chance to start an incident response program from the ground up. And so talk about learning as you go, building the car as it's going down the road. We started as two people. It was the chief information security officer and myself, and we kind of begged, borrowed, and stole whatever talent and people we could get. Started with the networking team and folks from there. And by the time I left, I want to say the team was north of 50 people, including other areas like identity and access management, which had been its own discipline prior at the organization. And it was quite the mountain to get up. But at the same time, that was kind of my start in security. A lot of it was blue team focused, right? A lot of it was was definitely oriented towards defensive tools and defensive building defenses, incident response, some forensics in there. But yeah, that was kind of, I guess, my trajectory in a nutshell. And then, of course, your summary nicely leads into that as well. But, you know, that was really where I did a large chunk of learning was being thrown into situations where I was definitely in over my head and not having any other option but to figure it out. Well, that's definitely a unique, untraditional, unconventional way into security. And as much as I want to get into a lot of the work in the terms of reverse engineering or working with Chris Eagle, who's the author of the Ida book, I actually want to start focusing on your middle school English teaching experience. What would you say are some things that you learned from that experience that you apply today in your role as the CISO? You know, I think middle school is an era of your life that's memorable for a lot of reasons. I think a lot of people are realizing and becoming who they're going to be as an adult, <laughs> uh, for better or worse, right? Those awkward years of, of kind of that transition from being an elementary kid to being eventually an adult, right? And middle school is one of those areas where, one, I was teaching English. So communication, soft skills, getting to know people and communicate to them and deliver material to them in a manner they could consume was an ever-changing battle, 
you know, being not just the struggle to remain interesting and, and relevant to a, to a room full of 12 year olds, right, but also understanding how to communicate a complex subject or introduce a complex theme that they've never heard of into uh, some manner where they can grasp that either be via an analogy or a visual representation or, you know, helping them get their arms around a grammatical concept, things like that are just they're non intuitive. And getting a whole room 27 seven students, sometimes north of 30, all going in the same direction and then evaluating them on, on how well they're understanding it makes you own that communication in a manner that I don't believe a lot of other professions necessarily always have to. I'm not downplaying other professions. I've only had a small handful of different varieties of experience, but I couldn't stop at relaying the information. I've put it out there. Now it's on you to consume. Maybe I could with some of my high achieving students, but many of my students, I had to make sure that this concept was reinforced and it was delivered in a manner they could grasp it because my goal is for them to be successful. As a CISO, I'm doing the exact same thing. Most of my job is education. A portion of my job, yes, is security and uh, budget management and people management. But a lot of my job is education, both of those who report to me and to the people I report to, as well as my informal lateral relationships as well. I'm teaching IT people what security stuff is important, what is higher or lower risk. I'm talking to executives, relaying measurement of how well we're grasping some things as an organization. And I'm having to gauge on the fly whether or not they're tracking with what I'm saying or whether or not we're going to need to revisit this from a different angle. You know, I get exposure to lots of upper tier within my organization, but at the same time, those interactions are limited. They have to be because they're scheduled. It's not like a classroom where I'm there with students every single day and, hey, if we missed today, we'll get it tomorrow, same time, same place. In some cases, I may only interact with some executives, what, once a quarter, once a month if I'm lucky. I've got to get it and get it right the first time if I can. And that's difficult when you don't know the people, right? Just like in a classroom, you, you kind of have to get to know the students before you can really, really, truly teach them in some ways. You have your old tricks and, and your bag of tricks to, to hopefully teach complex topics. But at the end of the day, you have to make that material relevant, usable for them, something that they can understand, something that draws upon their background and that is presented in a manner that makes sense without oversimplification. All those are the exact same things I'm doing right now, just with a different body of knowledge. I had a conversation the other day with a team at work regarding hashing. They'd never heard of hashing before. I don't blame them. That's not their wheelhouse. That's not their space. I had to explain what a hash was to a room full of executives who know how to do much more complex math than I will ever be able to do, but in a manner such that I'm not oversimplifying it such that they believe it's the tool that will solve every problem they have. And, and finding that, that balance between the two is... It's definitely a challenge, but it's something that I can draw upon from my prior experience and actually from my undergraduate education to really help me there. So how much of your role would you say is actual security work versus marketing and, and communication? So marketing is real small, I would say. The marketing piece, I don't do well. Honestly, I don't brand myself well. I don't market much. Those are areas that you know I, I definitely I am working on improving. I would say that I'm probably 20% education or so. As a senior leader in security, I'm doing less and less technical work, and I'm having to find ways to supplement that to remain relevant, for sure. But I also need to trust my people. 
I need to put my team in situations such that they're learning as well and are outside their comfort zone and are growing and I'm investing in them to do that. So all of those are kind of soft skills answers to some of that question, right? Actual security work, as far as making security decisions, as far as making security judgment calls or leading incident response, I would still say is a large portion of my day. But I do find myself less and less hands-on keyboard, unless we count emails, which I don't. I find myself doing less of the actual technical commands, unless it's, sometimes it's to prove a point, unless it's to solve a real and direct problem. Right. I would say a good chunk of my time is putting things in relatable terms, not just for leaders in specific business organizations and, and groups, but also to IT people or semi-technical people as well, so that they understand my decision-making process, kind of that teach a man to fish bit, as well as enabling a future conversation, hopefully, with those individuals. Right. I have a lot of executives on our teams, for instance, that they understand encryption is important. They might not necessarily understand why. Not that they don't get the concept, but why is encryption a big deal for my connections to the network? Well, let's talk about that. There's a few risks and we talk about it in terms, you know, insurance people, I love them because they can talk in terms of risks. And once that's put in a relatable term, it's a much simpler conversation from that point forward, right? Whereas, for instance, when I worked in higher education, risk was not necessarily nearly as much at the forefront. So Seth, what surprised you the most about the CISO? So probably the most surprising aspect of the CISO role to me, I always viewed it as an end state of my career, right? Eventually, I'd work my way up through the ranks. I know we're not doing video right now, but for those of you who are out there, just imagine a very young and attractive man on video. But no, I am definitely younger than many of my counterparts that are CISOs. So I always viewed myself 20, 30, 40 years into my security career, becoming a CISO then. So I've had a unique opportunity to enter that space younger than I think I would have ever anticipated. I think what's been one of the biggest surprises as a CISO is how much of the role is communication. How much of the role is day-to-day -day making sure that I am relaying something in a relatable manner and communication ownership. That comes in a lot of forms. You know, I have had numerous interactions, for instance, where people are frustrated with a decision I've made for many reasons. CISOs have that wonderful reputation of being the man or woman who says no. I do say no. I, there are things that I say, hey, that is a bad idea, or I advise against doing that. Of course, that's frustrating to somebody who has just put in a lot of time and effort to do something in an organization. Now we have an impasse, especially if I'm not really in a position of authority over that individual. Now we're going to have to talk this through. And owning my half of things, explaining my half, saying, hey, listen, this is a judgment call. And here is why I believe this is not a good choice or why this bears additional risk that is not acceptable to this organization. Or even, you know, there are times where people get really angry. And, you know, I've, I have been screamed at. I have been called many names under the sun. Finding a means to be unoffendable, remain calm, keep the tone and the conversation professional and cordial. I've actually found I really enjoy that which is probably the most surprising piece. I enjoy de-escalation. I enjoy that process of removing maybe, <laughs> maybe my first draft of that email that I wanted to send back, removing myself, taking my ego out of that conversation and saying, hey, it sounds like you're frustrated by this decision. How can I help? What is it that's frustrating you? I'm hearing this. What is it that we can do? And there are times where the answer is nothing. But when the issue becomes less about the other person, I'm not attacking them. 
I can't ever think of an instance where I've been going towards or after someone individually. It's always a problem I'm looking to solve. It's about the issue, not the person. It's never the person. And if I can get them into that headspace, that's really a sweet spot that I had no idea <laughs> I would enjoy when I started in these roles. I'm looking forward to doing roles like this, hopefully for a very long time. You know, as one of my friends and myself joke that I fell upstairs into many of my roles and I continue to do so. As that's occurred, I am finding new layers to those conversations and those interactions and areas about my own personality and things I enjoy that I never would have thought at the outset that I would have enjoyed. And I genuinely do love doing it. As odd as it may sound, I'm not seeking out conflict and argument to de-escalate. But when it happens, I do enjoy it. Awesome. No, that's definitely great insight. So let's talk a little bit more about some of your reverse engineering specialization, given that that's what you did in your postgraduate school. Are there parts or components of what you learned from reverse engineering that you apply in practice today? Definitely. One, I am a big fan of learn by doing. So I came out of grad school. I went into my role at MITRE. I got thrown into RE problems day one almost immediately and had to wait for some paperwork and stuff to clear. But after that, I was in it. It's way different doing a sample problem than it is doing the real deal, touching real software. One of my first real professional problems, I worked on this thing for like two days and I'm picking it all apart and I'm finding all these things and I'm super excited because I was working on a sample, a software sample of what was maybe malware. We weren't sure. And so I was working in a lab in a closed environment, testing some things out, seeing, trying to figure out what this, what this software did. Is it malware? Is it not? And I spent two days just digging into this thing, super excited. I found this encryption algorithm inside of it. Man, I'm going to crack the communications in this. I'm so stoked. I found out I read MD5. <laughs> and it was one of those things where it was super gratifying when you're in the middle of it. And then when you realize this is a known algorithm, this is not exciting, this is even crackable hashes. <laughs> you know, one, it definitely gave me a very strong dose of humility right out the gate of, oh, wow, this is uh, harder than I thought it was going to be. But at the same time, I wouldn't change anything in my trajectory that I have done throughout my career because I've really, as I kind of alluded to earlier, I've really sought out hard problems, thrown myself in and had to figure it out. There wasn't really an option not to continue doing the reverse engineering on that particular chunk of software. I had a mistake. I learned from that mistake. And now I can move forward. And I saw MD5 a lot more times, as you can imagine, right? So it was definitely helpful to have that deep technical background. It still is to be able to have conversations and, and talk with technical folks and sometimes even establish credibility or what have you. But I think the more important lesson that I really pulled from those RE days is that it's okay to have trial and error. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to have a mistake, learn from that mistake. And honestly, those mistakes are what reinforce that learning for you much, much longer term. I give this example to some of my team members sometime. It's turned into a running joke with them, but I couldn't tell you what words I got right on spelling tests in the third grade. I can tell you that I misspelled doctor on the third grade spelling bee. I know I did, right? Because I remember that mistake and that has stuck with me in that lesson, right? I think it's the same thing, no matter how deep technical you go, that that networking guy that deleted the full config and on core routing or whatever, you don't forget that. The individual who overwrites a prod database, 
those lessons stick. And as long as, you know, as, as a leader, I don't punish mistakes. We learn from them. And yes, if that mistake is repetitive, I'm likely going to move you away from doing that, that role within our organization. But mistakes are part of the learning process. They're important. And I think we too often go, all right, listen, I'm not going to do anything because if I screw it up, I'm going to get in trouble. And that's not the way that we learn. That's not the way that systems are developed. And it's certainly not the way you have a breakthrough. So I think the most important lesson I had from RE was, was definitely learning how to make a mistake, recover, and use it to inform the next steps going forward. Yeah, it's funny you say that because the human condition is that we naturally remember things that have negative emotion associated with them. Your brain just links it to your memory better. So you have much more vivid memories of negative experiences than positive ones. And I always wondered what made this happen. And I think it's just evolution. You know, it's a way to learn how to survive and not get into that negative situation again. Your brain naturally tends to remember it when negative things happen to you. That's definitely a great example that you gave there. And I'm surprised you misspelled doctor of all the words in your spelling bee. In fairness, I was in the third grade. No, uh, <laughs> it was one of those things that I know it. I spelled it D-O-C-T-E-R too. It still stands out. That's what it sounds like. It does. I was not a strong reader as a third grader. So that changed over time, clearly English degree. But yeah, it was definitely memorable. My team still teases me on that fact. But you know, that's that's all right, too. Well, you know, talking about the insurance industry, there has been a lot of different news recently about the insurance space. There was some popular ones around like the CNA financial ransomware attack, as an example. I'd be curious from your perspective, are there certain attack trends that you're paying close attention to today? We are watching a lot right now. As I think any guest you would have right now would probably say ransomware is a high risk. It's also a top of mind issue, not only from a perspective of, hey, I don't want to get ransomware, but even from an insurer perspective, and we don't touch this area really in my role, but there are insurers that do cybersecurity insurance that are starting to realize, wow, this model may need to change right? Because the risk profile has ramped up significantly. I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but if you look at the trends in which ransomware has grown, just from a financial perspective and number of variants of ransomware, et cetera, and groups and reorganizing of groups, since 2015, it's been this, I mean, it's obviously existed long before then, but you've seen this crazy upward trend. Nobody wants to get hit, but at the same time, as continues to be shown, it seems as though if it's not going to happen to you, it very likely will happen to a third or a fourth or a fifth party provider. And there are, of course, companies for whom even if you, let's say, you choose not to go with them because they had a ransomware incident. If I choose a different third party, there is a high probability that third party uses the company that had that ransomware incident on some level or some layer. Just because of a lot of companies and organizations, right, have specific niche roles and outsourcing is cheaper. But, you know, it's some of the things that we're seeing, of course, like many in the midst of a pandemic, or I say a, a pandemic as though this happens every five years. But, you know, in the midst of a situation such as COVID-19, we went from a fully on-premise workforce to a fully remote workforce almost overnight. And there are, of course, the, the inherent network risks and the inherent security models that may bank on a perimeter-centric security, right? I think we were well prepared for because we did have a remote workforce already. There's a large chunk of knowledge exchange that's going to have to happen to a group of people who always reported into a building that have maybe never used a VPN 
or have never had to really do any kind of multi-factor before. Whereas other people have been doing it for a decade or more, there's going to be that subset of your users that this is the first rodeo they've ever had. They've never had to bring a laptop home, let alone, you know, log into something. But along with that, we've seen some really interesting scams arise out of this. Of course, the wire fraud transfer scams and, and things like that, that I think have always been existent, but are just taking advantage of companies announcing they have changed business models. One such attack that I have found kind of interesting, and, and this is through conversations with my peers in other companies, other organizations, kind of, I don't believe this is even industry specific, is of course, an attacker is going to try and monetize whatever it is that they get their hands on. So if I'm an attacker, if I compromise an email account, I want to turn that into some sort of monetization as quickly as possible. At times that's using, you know, sending out spam or phishing or, or something like that. But one of the more clever ones that I've heard described and I've seen some diagrams on is this concept of, let's say I compromise a mailbox, I immediately search for the word invoice or unpaid invoices. And I find out the sender of that invoice and I create a lookalike domain for that sender. And now I spoof that exact user that sent the invoice in the first place and say, hey, this is overdue. This needs to be paid. You know, create that sense of urgency, just like a normal attack would, right? And then get them to change the wire transfer number or whatever. The difficulty is when, you know, for especially for, for some of my peers, it's their company being spoofed, not their company being compromised. And now they're stuck in a position where they're trying to describe a decently complex attack to probably an under-resourced, smaller to medium-sized business who maybe has three IT people or five IT people. And that attack is a decently complex attack. Lots of places don't have the capability to see, okay, they spoofed this user. Where did this user email into my environment? You know, prior to this, where did this invoice come from? How did they get an exact copy of this invoice? And by the way, all of this looks like the sender of the invoice, right, is the compromised company, not you as the recipient. So you're almost working backwards. And as I discussed this with a couple of my peers, they said the hardest piece is getting evidence to prove a negative. How on earth am I going to prove the null hypothesis here of prove something definitely didn't happen in my environment, right? And by the way, the other side, the side that just got scammed is saying, well, it's not us. You guys sent us a faulty thing and it looks like your user's compromised. Now you got to try and get logs out of that side, which is going to be near impossible and convince your management that it wasn't you. It's an awkward and difficult situation to be in, but especially for companies that have, let's say, 50,000 customers or more. Even if you knew a spoof domain of yours was being created, what is your path of recourse there? I can maybe submit a takedown request. I have no sample email to prove that that happened, right? That this has occurred. I can claim an intellectual property infringement and maybe go after the registrar or whoever and say, hey, listen, GoDaddy or whoever, this is clearly copyright infringement on our stuff. But if they've never published a website and they probably won't, and they've not sent a single email out or I don't have access to those emails to prove it, companies like that, they're not interested in that conversation either. Even if I catch it, I don't have a path to put the kibosh on it, nor do I have the ability to send out to 50,000 customers, hey, this new domain was registered, be on the lookout for xyz.com, right? And so as we were talking through it, you know, it's it's pretty clear as a defender, your resources are really finite as far as what you can do in that scenario to protect your own customers. So that's one I hadn't seen or hadn't heard of before. 
And it's pretty multifaceted, right? That's not one that you can easily tackle or even change for yourself because you're not the one who's receiving the spoofed emails. You're not the one who's even necessarily aware this is going on until it's too late and your customer has maybe not done their due diligence of following up with you and going, hey, did your wire transfer number change? That sort of stuff that would be a positive business practice. The group that ends up getting hurt, maybe it's a reputation damage for you as an organization, but the group that really ends up getting hurt is that customer. Yeah, it makes things difficult. So Seth, what would you say are some of the most effective security activities that you're implementing today and getting good results out of? So I would say some of the most effective stuff that we've seen changing the game in general have really revolved around, and this feels like a broken record because I know I've heard others say it too, but having strong asset management, having strong patching practices and vulnerability management practices is critical. Beyond that, having strong authentication is equally critical. So not just multi-factor, but checking system state if you have the ability, checking for user agent strings, is it consistent? Source IP, is that consistent? You know, we know attackers have, even if they're coming from overseas, they have infrastructure here in the United States, right? To assume that I'm going to never get an attacker trying to log in from Atlanta or, you know, Arizona or something like that would be foolish of me. But I can note with relatively simple rule sets, hey, this is a new IP, or this is a new device, or this is a new source for this user's authentications, and then take actions accordingly. We've seen some incredible progress, just not even in our own development or tooling, but just leveraging products we already have and some of the enhancements that have come out in the last couple of years. A lot of the authentication tools now have the ability to see, is this a domain join device or not? Is this the usual IP or not? Can we trigger a multi-factor? Is this the same user agent string or not? All of those, they're not perfect. None of them are airtight. There's ways around multi-factor. There's ways to spoof things and trick users and do all those other things. But at the same time, it gives us a certain probability or a certain reasonable level of assurance that likely this user is who they claim to be. And you know, from there, we can make decisions. Moving your workforce to remote, I know a lot of organizations did. That's a hard problem to solve for other areas like vulnerability remediation, patch remediation, et cetera. Getting software updated, especially if it was always on-prem, is a big switch, right? So there's those areas have really given us a lot of traction, a lot of gain. I think where it gets difficult, right, is if you're working with an incomplete asset inventory right out the gate, you have no idea your success ratio. You, at best, are stabbing in the dark. And I know this is an age-old problem. Whether or not you have good asset management tells you whether or not you're doing well. But overall, maybe I'm singing the same chorus a different way, but overall, those areas, if there are any things that can be improved, man, those attack surfaces and understanding what, you know, print nightmare when it came out, easy example. What devices do I need to get print drivers locked down on? What devices do I need to make changes to in order to most rapidly reduce my exposure? You know, without some tooling to do that, and it's hard to get that genie back in the bottle if all your users are out in the ether, but really those tools, as trivial and as basic as those may seem, have really given a lot of traction for us, at least. Awesome. No, thank you, Seth. That's definitely helpful and, and insightful. Before we wrap up, I always like to talk about things that are a little non-work related and, and maybe a little more personal to get to know our guests better. So, you know, you have quite a busy household with four children. Wanted to ask you, what are some of your favorite activities to do as a family? 
So one of my favorite things to do with my kids is, or with my entire family, is to get outside with them. The benefits of being remote right now, we live a little bit rural. We have a woods behind our house, take the kids just out. We build forts, we shoot slingshots, we ride quads and just do something. Honestly, for me, it's therapeutic to do something that doesn't touch a piece of technology for a little bit at times. My kids are pretty little. My, my oldest is nine and I have four, like you mentioned. So we're still, I, I wouldn't say we're doing grand adventures yet. A little bit of camping here and there, that kind of stuff. But as they get a little bit older here, I definitely want to get them out, take them traveling, show them the world, really get them exposed to multiple peoples and cultures and things outside of Michigan. <laughs> Michigan's great. Love the state. But, you know, I do want them to see a lot more than is just here. So for us as a family, really doing those kinds of activities together, as especially with all this remote stuff and me being at home. I know video probably won't be on for this actual podcast, but I am coming to you from my four-year-old son's bedroom right now, uh, complete with his, his books and such over my shoulder. And, you know, being at home, my youngest daughter was actually born during COVID. Being home for little milestones has been so cool to hear the first time she laughed for real to be there for, for first steps, to catch her trying to go up the stairs, those kinds of things that normally I'd be in an office or I wouldn't necessarily, I'd see it that evening, has been really cool. I'm excited to see kind of what the future of remote work looks like, what the future of maybe even hybrid office models, et cetera, look like for exactly these reasons. I think it's going to be fun. We do a lot just family-wise together. It's hard not to when your kids are that small. You can't exactly let them be terribly autonomous. Yeah, I'd say really getting outside, bike riding, playing in the woods. That's been kind of one of the biggest things that we've gravitated to. Are there any favorite spots that you have within Michigan or state parks that you like to go to? Yeah, there's a state park maybe an hour away from us that's ideal with small kids. So recommendation for young families, if you want to get your kids out and go camping, do it somewhere close by where if you absolutely have to, you can take a small child back home, let them take a nap in their bed <laughs> and come right back, right? Or gee, this campground's super nice. Uh, let's go pick up bikes, you know, and, and Go home, get bikes, make two trips, whatever, when you, you leave. In Michigan, there's a bunch of really cool places to visit, even if you're not outdoorsy. Mackinac Island, the Mackinac Bridge, Mackinac City, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. So a lot of people don't realize Michigan has two halves, right? There's this big upper chunk that is a little more remote. Pictured rocks to Quaminon Falls up there are beautiful. If you like wine, Traverse City and Michigan is pretty great. Downtown Detroit is amazing too. It's changed a lot over the last 30 plus years as far as the, the massive fluctuations that have happened in Detroit. There's been some really awesome investment in Detroit's infrastructure in the downtown area, lots of music venues, lots of fun things to go and do. Even if you just want to get a feel for downtown Detroit, Campus Martius is, is just this cool downtown area. You know, it's very fun. But yeah, I mean, there's, shoot, people can find me. They can look me up on LinkedIn. I, I can give you Michigan recommendations all day. West side of the state, the whole lakeshore. Yeah, I could go on. But yes, um, tons and tons of fun things to do. Awesome. Well, Seth, thank you so much for your time. This was a true pleasure and really enjoyed the chat. And I hope to meet up with you in person once all this pandemic gets under control. Sounds great. I'll be there. Awesome. Take care. See ya. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.